Oh, hey, Twitter. It's Thursday, and we have a great show for you. We'll be talking about Booker and Biden, and then I'm interviewing Broadway star Lara Benanti. Mm, and then I'm sitting down with Succession star Nicholas Braun. So stay right there, and we'll see you on the timeline. Do you like our denim outfits? It's an ad. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. And it's Thursday. I keep forgetting. It is I Thursday. Keep, keep forgetting that it's Thursday. <laughs> but I want to say good morning to everyone, and especially Zach Stafford, oh an award-winning journalist. Thank you. Oh yes. my God. Tell the people what you won an award for. For being gay. I'm joking. <laughs> Not for being gay. I do win those awards stuff. Um, no, I won the NLGJA Award for Best Digital Content or Journalism, these things. I did a documentary that came out in January of 2018, which feels like forever ago. It does ago really feel like forever in ago. In Trump's America, but I guess you still win awards for things back then. And um, I was given this award yesterday along a lot of incredible journalists, um, but it's the organization that identifies LGBTQ journalism around the world. So it was very much an honor, and there will be a whole ceremony in New Orleans, and you should watch the documentary. Yeah, and speaking of time being a flat circle, you would actually actually been on AM2DM to talk about yes. this very video. Which is crazy. I did not know that till Mary, a producer on the show, mentioned that she produced the segment of me coming yep. to the show to talk about the premiere of the documentary called Boys Town, which explores gentrification in Chicago through the lens of food and queer people. Yeah. So take a look when you get a chance. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> well, we'll tweet it out for sure. Perfect. Thank you, thank you. Well, this tweet was all over my timeline from <coughs> Amy Pinza yesterday. It says, my mother-in-law wore a wedding dress to my wedding. So yeah, top that one, Twitter. I'm look at this. I'm raging. You're raging. About this. If anyone, I'm mad when people wear the same outfit as me to a dinner, let alone my wedding. Uh, yeah, can you imagine, Ooh. like, you're standing there in your wedding gown and then your mother-in-law-to-be walks through the doors and she's also in a wedding gown. It's just, you already have this idea that, you know, winning over the mother of your soon-to-be husband, if you're in that type of relationship, is going to be tough. I mean, there are movies about it. Jennifer Lopez played Mother-in-Law, the, the Monster-in-Law movie. A fine piece of cinema. But for her to then take it to the next level of, oh yeah, girl, reminder, he always started with me too much. It's uh, we would fight. really uh, quite a way of wishing your new daughter-in-law well. Yeah, I mean, I will say, uh, so we obviously had a very visceral reaction yes. to this, but there is some backstory that made okay, me feel let me a hear the excuse. Differently. So Amy clarified why her mother-in-law wore the gown. Here's the thing, my mother-in-law is extremely frugal, and I don't mean she just enjoys a good bargain. To understand her, you have to know where she comes from. And she went on, for example, she takes the olives and celery out of a Bloody Mary and saves them for salads. So her mother-in-law uh, grew up in poverty, and so she got a good deal on this wedding dress, and that is why she wore it. It was not done as, like, a stunt. It was okay. not done as, like, you know, to show up and Yeah, flex. I just want to take— flex. Can we take a moment to talk about the olives? Let's take celery. a moment. Okay, so one, putting your Bloody Mary olive and celery into your salad makes it quite a boozy salad. And I'm a girl that loves boozy everything, but my salad doesn't need to have vodka in it. I swear to God, it doesn't. You're not ready to get drunk off your veggies. Also, breaking news for all of you, when you order a salad, adding on like an olive or celery is free of charge. Well, you don't have to pay for it. Here we are. So good luck to you all over there in that wedding. That household looks very fun and very mm. frugal. <laughs> Let's take it to the timeline, though. What's the most mortifying thing you've ever seen at a wedding? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Most mortifying thing you've ever seen? I've seen people wear inappropriate dresses, like mother-in-law's wearing like sexy gowns, but I've never seen that. What about you? Um, I have seen far too many mortifying things happen at weddings, and I don't want to put anybody on blast, so I can't speak about them specifically here. But I will say one thing that I do see that happens on the internet is um, people proposing at other I people's just, weddings. I feel uh, like it's just, let's just not. Whew, not yeah, let's just all agree today to stop doing that. Awful <sighs> idea. Terrible. All right, well, moving along. Here's a tweet from the New York Times. Iran said it shot down a U.S. drone, a state-run news outlet in Iran said that the drone had flown over Iranian territory unauthorized. The U.S. military disputed the accusation that it had violated Iranian airspace, but none, not the loss of a drone. Senior editor and reporter for the BuzzFeed News World Team, Hayes Brown, is here to explain. Good morning, Hayes. Good morning, guys. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what is going on with Iran? I mean, it's... It's been a minute of just constantly escalating tensions between Washington and Tehran. So this is the latest example of that. So both countries, like that tweet said, 
agreed that a U.S. drone was flying near-ish Iran that was shot down. It was a surveillance drone, not an armed drone. So let's breathe on that one. Uh, but Tehran says that Iran says that the drone was shot down over Iranian territory, which would be a violation of its airspace, and they'd be totally in the right to do so. Uh, but the U.S. says no. We were over international waters. What you did was extremely extra aggressive, extremely extra, and there will be probably maybe consequences for that. Mm. So this is obviously escalated tensions between the two countries. But what was it like before this incident yesterday? Okay, so last year the Trump administration withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, which the U.S. Russia, China, France, Germany, and the United Kingdom signed on to with Iran saying, okay, we'll lift all these sanctions on you if you slow down your nuclear program, stop enriching so much uranium, uh, get off the path to possibly maybe making a nuclear weapon. The Trump administration pulled back from that last year, and since then, he's had advisors who've been pushing him for maximum pressure on Iran to do... That's The strategy is actually a little questionable here. At first, some, they were saying that's to get Iran back to the de- table to get a broader deal to, that deals not just with their nuclear program, but also with their support for terrorism in the region, their support for militias, and their missile program. But it's also possibly to, you know, push the Iranian government to the point of breaking, since people like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton have been longtime advocates of regime change in Tehran. So while this has all been going on for the last year, and there's been pushes lately to try and see how much the U.S. get away with. Pompeo the other day said that if any U.S. service member is killed at, by the actions of Iran, that would require military response. And according to people in Congress, the Trump administration has been going around trying to hype up the ties between Iran and al-Qaeda, possibly so that in the case they want to, they can say, well, we had this use of force authorization from 2001 to go after al-Qaeda. Iran and al-Qaeda are friends. Ergo, we can attack Iran if we want. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, how is Yemen involved in all this? Okay, Yemen's involved in all of this because our good friends, Saudi Arabia, have been conducting a war in Yemen for the last couple of years. They've been trying to push back on a group called the Houthis, which are are supported by Iran. So this is a proxy war that's going on. Uh, Saudi Arabia is bombing the heck out of the Houthis and trying to support what they say is the legitimate government in Yemen versus Iran, who has been supplying the Houthis. The U.S. has been backing Saudi Arabia through all this, despite... As we were reminded yesterday with the UN report, the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, but we, as the US, keep supplying Iran with weapons, with funds to prosecute this war. The Senate, uh, the Congress tried to put a halt to the arms deal to Saudi Arabia, but the US just overrode and gave the arms to Saudi Arabia anyway. So that's what's going on with Yemen. Uh, Yemen recently, the Houthis just the other day, claimed to have shot missiles into Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia said, yeah, they totally did it. This is why we're in this war, and it's a mess. Mm, It sounds like a mess. So my big question for you today is, are we going to war with Iran now? So we're not going to war with Iran now. Uh, but I don't like I, that shrug. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, I, the I shrug, so is, ooh, shrug is what I've got cool, because, cool, 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 cool. because we've got Bolton and Pompeo who have been, like I said, long-term advocates for regime change and have been pushing uh, on uh, Tehran uh, and saying, you know, come to the table and we're going to talk to you guys. But there's really no sign that that actually is the thing that they want. There's no sign that they're actually looking to give Iran an off-ramp and out to get off, get these sanctions lifted off of them, except for total capitulation. Um, But members of Congress are extremely wary about the idea of the Trump administration going to war without new authorization. Just yesterday, uh, Senator Todd Young of Indiana, a Republican, while talking to the uh, Kelly Kraft, who was nominated to be UN ambassador, said, no, I don't think that the administration has the ability to go to war with Iran without coming to Congress first. So if the president does try that without some sort of like extreme imminent action like they've been pushing uh, with this whole, I didn't even get into lately, there's been claims of Iran attacking oil tankers in the Straits of Hormuz and in the Persian Gulf. Without some kind of inciting incident, uh, Congress would not be willing to back the Trump administration going to war with Iran, it seems, for now. (sighs) Mm. Well, Hayes, thank you so much for unpacking all of that for us. I'm sure you feel much better now. (laughs) So much better, so much better. Well, yesterday, an infamous sex cult leader was found guilty and will now be heading to prison. The Daily Beast tweeted, Nexium leader Keith Rainier was convicted Wednesday of using the self-help group he founded as a sex cult for his personal pleasure. Catherine Oxenberg, whose daughter was in Nexium, reacted bluntly to the verdict. He's done. Fucking asshole. 
Aaron Katursky tweeted, U.S. Attorney Richard Donahue called Nexium's Keith Raniere a, quote, master manipulator, a con man and crime boss of a cult-like organization involved in sex trafficking, child pornography, and other crimes, including branding, degradation, and humiliation. Mm. Joining us today to talk about the case is BuzzFeed Entertainment reporter Michael Blackman. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Good, thanks for joining us. So who is Keith Raniere and what led him to create Nexium? Yeah, so Keith Raniere is a marketing executive and he created Nexium with a woman named Nancy Salzman. It started as ESP, Executive Success Program, and they began it in 1998. And it was essentially a way for people to uh, lead a more joyful life is how they marketed it. So uh, lead a more joyful life, obviously that is in great contrast to actually uh, what happened. Um, how else would Raniere uh, describe Nexium? Uh, well, he would describe it as a way to actualize human potential, like to maximize uh, what you could do, what you could be in your life. Um, essentially, it was, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. It was like, uh, <laughs> is it? Oh my gosh, I'm having like a major brain fart. Listen, it is a, there, it, there is a lot in this case <gasps> yeah, to there's unpack, a ton. So, it's a lot. Well, something I'm really interested in are these self-help courses that these women have described. What are they and why were they the entry point for them to join this cult? Yeah, so with the courses, like you could take like a five-day intensive or a 16-day intensive. Uh, and these introductory courses would essentially teach you that essentially your whole worldview, like good and bad was wrong. Uh, they would teach you things like there are no ultimate victims in life and that you are responsible for the way that you're, that you're responsible for your life, essentially that you have total control over it. And usually in this group, so with Keith, he was referred to as Vanguard and Nancy Salzman, she was referred to as Prefect and they were the first and second in command. Uh, in these courses, after a course would end, people would have to thank them, um, which some people definitely found a bit weird. But uh, from what I've heard, like over the course of the trial, by like day three, people would be like, hmm, I'm a little bit into this, even though it's a bit weird. And that would be like the diving point for like most people. Mm -hmm. huh. What methods did Rainier use to control these women's lives as well? Well, when you get into... Uh, the sex cult of it, which was called DOS, um, which was like Latin for Dominus Subsequius Sororium, which essentially meant uh, master over the slave women. Uh, before they could get into the group, they had to use, uh, well, they had to offer up collateral. So women would uh, usually present nude photos of themselves or uh, some sort of video that would implicate them of like some sort of crime. And it didn't have to necessarily be true or not. Uh, the reason was that DOS was a secret organization, so the women had to offer up some sort of collateral that was damaging enough so they would not tell uh, anyone about this organization. Mm. And Rainier was not the, was the sole defendant in yesterday's case, but there were other people involved. Notably, there was Claire Bronfen, who was the Seagram's liquor heir, and also actress Allison Mack. Where are they now that they've uh, pled guilty to these charges involved? Well, um, I'm not sure where they are <laughs> right now, um, but I do know that they are going to be sentenced. I know Allison Mack, she's going to be sentenced in September along with Keith, not on the same day. He's going to be sentenced uh, September 25th, but with Allison Mack, she's going to be sentenced on September 11th, uh, and she could face up to 20 years in prison, um, and that's for, like, racketeering and racketeering conspiracy. And then as far as Claire Bronfman, who was, like, as you said before, like uh, Seagram's liquor heir, heiress, uh, she could face 21 to 27 months in prison, and that's for like uh, harboring an undocumented uh, immigrant and like uh, identity fraud, essentially. Wow, quite a story, Michael. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And we have a great show for you today. Zach will be sitting down with succession actor Nicholas Braun, and I'll be talking to Broadway star Lara Benanti. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Ooh. Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets. And of course, we just asked you for your most mortifying wedding stories in light of that uh, bride whose mother-in-law-to-be <laughs> showed up wearing a wedding dress. And uh, Monica Rooney uh, responded saying, I went to a wedding where my ex-fiance was the best man. He's not a good public speaker, but he gave a 30-minute speech that was just reciting the punchline of all the in-jokes this group of friends had. Oh, also, God. the mother of the bride wrote an acrostic poem about the couple that was 30 verses long. 
Doing too much, y'all. Way too much. 30 verses. <sighs> Everyone goes like, to a wedding for the open bar and to maybe go home with someone else. I know. Do not give us 30 minutes it's of like, any speech. Ugh, <laughs> God. It's too much. All right. Sarah, you tweeted. When you ask white people how spicy something is, they love saying, it's got a bit of a kick. <laughs> As our honorary white person, is this true? This is 100% true. I have even been known to say this myself. So wow, there we go. Fact checking in Judge real time, me. America. There you go. Fact checking. <laughs> Wet Moser, you tweeted. Scooters are God's punishment for not building bike lanes. Yeah, it's true. In LA, they are everywhere. Really? New York, I'm starting to see them more. The electric ones. Yeah. You know, Lyft has their own version. Everyone has a they version. They make me nervous. Um, they make me incredibly nervous. But something that happens in LA is that people take them to the Santa Monica Pier and throw them in the ocean. And everyone wonders why climate change is happening. Wait, they just take the scooters and they toss them in the ocean. Oh, yeah, it's a huge problem. Like, that literally. is very odd. Yeah, I it's don't very understand bizarre. LA culture. Mm, me either. <laughs> Helena, you tweeted, girls will have one loose ibuprofen rolling around at the bottom of their feeler raven and be like, yep, I'm the mom friend. <laughs> I'm so glad we have this treat because I have been obsessed with learning how to say feeler raven. Feeler raven. Because it is not spelt like feeler raven. It's like F-J-J-J. Yeah, it's like some other, whole other thing, those little bags. Do you feel like the one loose Advil makes someone the mom friend? I do. And this may be, be my mother, but mothers never have what they say is in their pocketbooks or their purses or whatever. Like, it's always like, can I get this thing? And they're like, oh, I have it. Oh, I just dig, ran dig, out. Dig, dig, dig into oh, the bag. I don't have any more gum. So no, that is a mom move. To All say right. you have something you don't. All right. <laughs> All right, Mr. 90, you tweet it. Once you turn 25 years and above, there's no need to set an alarm. Your problems will wake you up by force. Have your problems Dark. woken you up by force? I wake up at 4.37 many days in the morning so thinking I've missed the show. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Could you imagine? Like you wake up late and you're like, Alex is standing here by herself like, Zach, is not here. It is, you know, I mean, I worry about my own capacity to oversleep, mm -hmm. but uh, sometimes I get like that anxiety jolt where I wake up and I'm like, I cannot fall back asleep. Mm. I'm ruminating on all of the stress that I have. So yeah, I suppose that is. It's tough. I get yeah, it. Thank you for real. tweeting that. All right. Tweet of the day. Yep. Let's do it. Tweet of the day comes from Free Soldier. Me in the hospital after breaking my back trying to carry the conversation. Ooh. That is a mood. It really is. I feel as if that people don't know how to have a conversation anymore, small talk. Whenever I'm at an event, people are like struggling to even fill space. I'm like, what yeah. happened? But I hate just, small talk. It's a, you know a fun fact about small talk? If someone brings up weather, that means they're over the conversation. Oh. It's like oh, a thing I read once, but like weather is the signifier that I don't really want to talk to you because yeah. weather's so general. So, anyway. I, can't, I can't even stand small talk that much. I just got to cough it out. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to cough my way through it. <laughs> really well, let's am. cough our way through this segment then. Coming up, I'm sitting down with actor Nicholas Braun <laughs> from HBO's drama series Succession. But up next, we are going live from the district. Welcome back. We're, we're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill correspondent Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just gonna try not Alex to cough out here. Going through a cough I'm having spell. like a coughing fit. Everybody bear with me. So we're gonna no. do this. All right, well, here's a tweet from Jamil Smith. Responding to criticism over his remarks about friendships with segregationist colleagues, Joe Biden cites his civil rights record and then says, apologize for what? Cory Booker should apologize. He knows better. I don't have a racist bone in my body. Paul, where did all of this start? Right, so, uh, Joe Biden, as you may have seen, has been making the sort of basis of his campaign being that I will be able to work with Republicans and get things done. I'm the guy everyone likes. Um, and recently to demonstrate that or to illustrate that, uh, talked about how when he joined the Senate, there were still segregationist Democrats in the party. And he talked about how he, you know, he would he would argue with them, and then he would go and sit down and eat with them because even though we disagreed, we didn't always get along. We still managed to get things done, um, which again to him was sort of uh, a telling story about being able to reach across the aisle and work with people you disagree with. Uh, however, the uh, talk of getting along and eating with segregationists also have rubbed some people the wrong way, uh, which is not surprising. Yeah, but what exactly is the history of Senators Eastland and Tomaj? Yeah, uh, I mean, these are people who uh, joined the Senate in the 
40s in Eastland's uh, case, uh, 50s in Tamaj's case. I mean, these were people, these are dinosaurs of a different age. They were in the Senate for about 30 years, and uh, they were ardent segregationists. These are people who railed against Brown versus Board of Education, railed against the Civil Rights Act. I mean, you know, it seems crazy now, but this was a time where uh, this was before the realignment of the parties where you had sort of liberal northern Republicans and southern hyper-conservative Democrats. And that was the world that that, uh, Joe Biden entered when he he first entered the Senate. That was the world. Well, I think so many people were struck by his insistence that Cory Booker apologize to him. So how have the other presidential candidates responded to this? I mean, basically, everyone has <laughs> condemned his remarks in, to some degree. Uh, I mean, most prominently, uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Cory Booker, the two black candidates running for the presidential nomination. I mean, they came out quite forcefully, called on him to apologize. But uh, others as well, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, a lot of people have uh, said that this was, at the very least, insensitive, but also that he, he's, you know, he's lacking a sort of historical grip on the things that, that he's saying. But, uh, you know, as we've seen, uh, Biden is so far defined, as you say, going so far as to say, like, why should I apologize? Booker should apologize. That's how much he is digging in here. Mm. And how was the Black Congressional Caucus responding to this controversy? You know, actually, they've been the ones who, uh, from what I've seen so far, have not exactly come out in waves of condemnation. Um, uh, Representative Clyburn, who is the most senior black member in Congress, has actually came out defended uh, uh, Joe Biden, saying that, like, yeah, like I have to, <laughs> I know what he means. I have to work with people that I strongly disagree with all the time. So it, it you know, it hasn't actually uh, alienated too many of the people that he's known and worked with for quite a while. Hmm. Uh, I have to say, it feels like there isn't a day when there is not a Joe Biden controversy, although uh, sometimes they don't always stick. Um, Does this one feel any different? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because like, sort of by virtue of what his pitch is, he's a little bit inoculated from scandal because his whole thing is, look, I'm the guy that middle-of-the-road Rust Belt voters, they'll vote for me instead of Trump, and it doesn't really matter if people on the left are angry at me, they're still going to vote for me as well because I'm so much better than Donald Trump. And so that kind of has, it protects him a little bit from some of these scandals where you know other, other leaders, or I'm sorry, other contenders have to be a little bit more careful about not alienating the base. But, you know, that all said, I mean, who knows? This is so early. Yes, Joe Biden is up in the polls right now. I don't read anything into that because these things can flip on a dime and there are going to be a lot of dimes we're passing between now and a year from now. Mm-mm-mm. It really will keep flipping on a dime for a while now. Well, I want to take us to another tweet from ABC News. ta Coast criticizes Mitch McConnell over his comments on reparations. Quote, for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. Paul, what did Coates say to McConnell in what Twitter is now calling an epic clapback regarding reparations? Right. Well, so uh, Senator McConnell was asked uh, two days ago, I suppose, uh, about reparations and basically said, look, this was something that happened 150 years ago. Let's leave it in the past. I don't think this is something we need to deal with now. And uh, what Coates was essentially saying was like, no, this is not something that just happened 150 years ago. I mean, the, 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 the reconstruction of America and the horrible fucking up of the reconstruction of America is essentially, you know, the mark that to this day defines so much of American life and certainly for the century after uh, reconstruction. And then, yeah, again, to this day. So, I mean, him just saying, look, this is not just something you can bury in the past. This is something that continued on into your life. People you knew where you were growing up, you were growing up in the South, you were around this. And this this sort of mass disenfranchisement of black people from capital, from opportunity. And I mean, you know, Coates is the guy who has really put this whole conversation, uh, really brought it into the public forum. And uh, and I mean, he was, you know, making a lot of the cases that he is, that he has made before to sort of make the case of why this is something that Congress and the American people should be discussing in 2019. We mentioned uh, Senator Booker earlier and uh, Danny Glover was also at this hearing. Um, what did they have to say? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, so Danny Glover actually, his great grandmother was a slave. He said he met her when he was a small child and talked about that. Uh, Cory Booker, who also has legislation in the Senate that he has put forward to study the idea of reconciliation, saying that we need to um, sort of grapple with the root causes of racism and discrimination. So both of them speaking out in favor of moving to a next step where Congress would at least study uh, whether or not this is something that could be feasible. Mm. Yesterday on my timeline, I saw people really rallying around these these congressional hearings and testimonies. Do you do we think that this is going to be a real turning point in the conversation regarding reparations? I don't know if I'd say turning point, but it, it is really notable that we're having this conversation in Congress and that we're having it in a public forum. I mean, you know, you know, the, the Coates cover story, the case of repara- uh, reparations in the Atlantic, that in some ways really brought this into uh, public view. But I mean, you know, there are tons of people who are not reading the Atlantic. I mean, this is, this is a, a progression of this dialogue, of, of taking it to a point where, you know, it's the beginnings of a conversation about whether this is something that America should take up. So I don't, I don't think this particular hearing is going to be a turning point, but I think it is, it is certainly noticeable. And this is a sign that this conversation is growing more public than it has been before. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, great talking with you. Cheers. Up next, I'm sitting down with Succession star Nicholas Braun. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with actor Nicholas Braun, star of HBO's hit drama series, Succession. Hi, Nicholas. Hey. How's it going? It's good. It's good. Yeah, good to be here. It's so good to be here. Everyone said you were going to be incredibly tall. In America, he is incredibly tall. I am tall. It's great. I love that for you. I have a large, large body. I'm, yeah. I'm into large bodies. <laughs> so, succession, <laughs> so Succession has been a huge success lately. But in the beginning, people were sleeping on it. Why was that? I mean, I think, you know, the, the show starts off, it's, it's an intense show. It's, you know, it's about, about a family that's... Um, you know, everyone's vying for power. It's kind of, it, you're not exactly sure what the tone is. It seems like pretty dark and intense. And I think as it goes on, there's some humor in it. And I think you start to realize you can actually like these people. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're a dynamic bunch of, uh, of weirdos. So they're not all <laughs> bad and they're definitely not all good. So yeah. They're complicated. They're complicated people, yeah. And we love a good complicated person. Yeah. So the season really took off when the finale hit uh, earlier this year, last year. Did you see that coming? Because it's not usual for a show to take off once the finale airs. It usually works the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, I I think, um, I don't know, you know, it it started and it it airs so so quickly. Mm -hmm. It's like two and a half months and then then it's done. And I think it takes a little bit of time for people to realize, you know, that this, the, the, the show is what it is. And I think, you, you know, it took a little while for people to catch on. And um, I, like, want to talk about the finale, but maybe people haven't seen it. Uh, but um, No spoilers. Yeah. But, but I think uh, you got to just give people time, I think, mm-hmm. with, with, with these kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. So season two is coming out in August. What is your favorite thing about the new season that won't spoil it for folks? Um, Greg does some more drugs uh, in in season two, so that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, first season got to uh, rip some lines of uh, of cocaine. Really? So yeah, that was yeah so, yeah. And so you're excited about the cocaine? Yeah, excited. Yeah, I pretty much yeah. I'm, I think that's my favorite part about season two is like the potential of doing more cocaine. I love that for you. Yeah. This is great. Do you yeah. want to do like mountains of cocaine or just like a few lines here and there? That was the thing. You know, that was the thing I was requesting on set was more coke. Um, yes. And so that you know that was tricky when they were like, no, just like do a little bit, and you know okay. I was sort of I kept asking for more and more. So the showrunner was concerned. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. they were concerned because Holly Hunter is joining this season. Yeah, we had to be good for her. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so what was it like working with her? Were you trying to get her to also do mountains of cocaine? Uh, you know, I felt like that wouldn't be a good icebreaker. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's great to have Holly Hunter on board. She is. She's such a talented person. We all know that. Um, but she's uh, very sweet, and mm-hmm. she fit right into the group. And you know, the show kind of requires you to be on your toes, and there's a lot of improv, and and she just you know fit right into the the groove. Mm, yeah, I, that's great. Yeah. So in the show, you your character is a little bit awkward. Do you relate oh. to that personality trait at all? 
you know, I, I, uh, I, I think I have some, some times of awkwardness in my life. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I love that about the character. Um, you know, I love that, that Greg doesn't have to really, I don't have to shut down mm -hmm. any feelings or any instincts or, you know, I don't have to like be cool. Although I'm trying to be and I'm trying to talk the talk and- Yeah, do cocaine. Do, do, yeah, yeah, do the coke, um, you know, which always makes you cooler, I heard. Um, uh, thank you for whoever laughed at that. I'm getting um, laughs in the back. Yes. Um, so yeah, no, I, I love I love that about Greg that that I can kind of bumble my way through things and in mm -hmm. life when you bumble your way through things you feel like oh cool like the world is ending right now mm -hmm. um, but in in the show it feels really good. Mm -hmm. yeah. So besides yourself, who else is helping inspire you to play Greg on the show? Um, you know, <clears throat> I met this guy. Actually, I didn't even meet him first. I just watched him. Um, this was at a wedding, a friend of mine's uh, wedding, and this guy was just dancing recklessly. Mm. Like, just sort of like, however he wanted to dance, however his body wanted to move, mm -hmm. he, he danced. There's a, a wedding in our first season, and I tried to emulate this guy for that. And just the spirit of, like, someone who, who isn't, he's not aware of, of what he should be doing and how you know, like reserved he should be. I think what's great about Greg is I get to f like be as instinctual and feel everything mm -hmm. and say what I want and be ambitious. And and um, and so that guy for some reason just like really resonated with me. Um, and then there was also a moment where I, I found myself feeling like I, I was watching Melania Trump videos mm. um, to feel how uh, maybe trapped uh, oh, yeah. She maybe feels uh, <laughs> um, in her life, uh, but you know, with Tom and Greg, Tom mm -hmm. is kind of putting me under his thumb a lot of the time, and I felt like that dynamic uh, felt that makes relevant. sense. I'm sure uh, the first lady could relate to that idea of feeling trapped at times under a thumb. Just because it's a big job, and just because it's the White House, course, but not for any other course. reason. There are literally but, no other reasons. Yeah, just because it's you know tough to wear a cool outfit every day. Yes, incredibly, it's been doing incredibly hard with the full staff. So season one, you became a meme. Mm -hmm. did, you, did your family send you these memes? Because they're quite good. Um, I've been sent a few memes. Yeah, yeah, I've been sent a, a, a few things. I didn't go down the full uh, rabbit hole of it, but I saw a couple good ones, and um, they were they're. They're awesome. I mean, I don't <laughs> Which know. one was your favorite that you saw? Uh, I saw one <clears throat> that was like episode one through three, uh, mm -hmm. episode <laughs> like four through six, like mm -hmm. cool. And then episode seven gets Cousin Greg tattooed. Yes, I've seen uh, that one. Because <laughs> Greg isn't in episode seven, and so I was like, cool. You like cool. that? The, the alliance is building. Yeah, yeah. Your fan base was there for you. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You need Greg all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. So you recently got to meet Bill and Hillary Clinton because of the show. I did, yeah. They've become close friends. Oh, I, that's amazing. What's yeah. it like being their close friend and what was it like meeting them? Um, yeah, you know, it was cool. It kind of, uh, it came about because uh, Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall on the show, um, invited me to a, a weekend at a friend's house and, and they were having this big bash mm -hmm. and they had apparently like a lot of very important guests coming, and then in walks Bill and Hillary. Uh, Casual. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> there they are, my soon-to-be best friends. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I went up to um, Hillary with one of the, the, the family, and that was really cool. And I couldn't really speak. I found myself really tongue-tied. And, um, and then Bill was kind of like... He had a group going, mm -hmm. and he was regaling them. He's and very gregarious too. Yeah, he's yeah, like, he gives you a lot of energy. Totally, yeah. I was like, I, I should walk over there. Like, mm -hmm. I think he would like that. And, um, and so, he had this little group going, and, uh, and I just kind of lurked there, Greg style. Mm. You know, I kind of just like art imitating life. Yeah, yeah. I was like, this is, feels relevant. You know, even if he doesn't talk to me, this is good stuff for me to put in the, the Greg bank, and. Um, and so, so he, so th this guy that I was talking to earlier in the party, like, sees me. He's like, "Oh, this guy's on Succession, Bill. Bill, you should meet this guy." And I was like, "Okay, cool." And all of a sudden, <laughs> Bill's talking to me, and we ended up talking for like thirty minutes. Wow. And yeah, and was you know, he a fan of the show? Yeah, uh, he hadn't watched it yet. Okay, he hadn't watched it. So, um, 
but he knew the concept. He knew what it was about, and he was like starting to pitch storylines and like oh. he was like really involved. And and at the end, I was like, Bill, you know, if you like the show, if you watch the show, he's like, I'm gonna watch it tonight. <laughs> and and I'm like, if you like it, um, you could do a guest star. Like, oh. You're producing the show now. You're yeah. executive producer, casting, directing, and acting in it. I'm doing, I'm just going for it. Yeah, well, is I'm Bill Clinton in this season? Did he take you up on an offer? So Bill is starring in the season, yeah. This amazing, season. breaking yeah, news. Season two. Um, yeah, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, beyond the show, you've been cast in A24's adaptation of the Zola thread on Twitter, the famous thread about sex workers and sex trafficking. Yeah. Um, we've been promised that film for a while. Is it actually happening we filmed it. It's like done, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're just saying it's coming and then you all are like, LOL, jokes on you guys. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, we, we really filmed it. Um, it's really good. I, th- I think it's going to be great. Um, it's Riley Keough and Taylor Page is playing Zola. Um, and, uh, and it's just a really, um, what can I say about it? It's, it's scary and it's, mm. and it's funny and it's, dark and it's um, kind of awful and I think going to be really good. I, I know most of all Twitter is very excited to see it. Yeah. So I hope it's all of those things because that sounds perfect for the Twitter girls. <clears throat> yeah, I think it is. I played the, the boyfriend of uh, Stephanie, Riley's character, who, who brings Zola mm-hmm. into the whole world. Um, and I play a really, he's a really manic, uh, very upset guy. Um, and does, I don't know if you've read the thread. He does some stuff at the end that's pretty wacky. Um, but I think it's I think it's going to be really cool. I haven't seen anything, but mm. we were shooting in Tampa, and it felt like well, Tampa. Well, I'm sure it's going to be incredible because you're in it, and that's what's going to make it incredible. Well, Nicholas, thank, thank you, you much. so much for yeah. coming and joining me today and being so tall and giving us Bill Clinton stories. Yeah, I have nothing to do with the tallness. You know, that's just how my body was built, so thank well, you. God bless bodies being built. <laughs> Season 2 of Succession premieres in August on HBO. Up next, Alex is talking to Shannon Keating about her life-changing lesbian cruise. Here's a tweet from our own Shannon Keating. I went on a lesbian cruise thinking I'd have a boring but perfectly pleasant time. I ended up having a million epiphanies about my gender and my future, fell in love, ended a five-year relationship, moved out of my apartment, and literally changed my entire life. And Shannon joins me now to talk about her brilliant piece. Thank you so much for joining me. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, so I want to give people a little bit of context in case they don't know what an Olivia cruise is. So uh, what is it? Why did you decide to go on one of these? So an Olivia Cruise is it's Olivia is a travel company that grew out of actually it was a, Olivia was originally a women's record label in the 70s just radical lesbians making music by and for women and then in the 90s the founder Judy decided that she had this gigantic audience of people who were so passionate and she thought that she might try and bring them all together and uh she decided to try and pivot into a cruise and travel company. So she took a gamble. She asked 500 women from around the country to put down a deposit a year in advance, no guarantees, uh, and they sold out immediately and booked another cruise and Olivia was born. And and that was it. Um, One of the things that uh, really struck me in the story is that you wrote about some of the intergenerational conversations Mm -hmm. you were having with lesbians. And I feel like, um, I mean, this is just something that is uh, really topical in terms of what's happening Mm -hmm. within our community. Um, Can you talk about what some of those conversations were? Yeah, for sure. So when I Uh, I wanted to write this story when I was talking to my editors about it because I am really interested in intergenerational lesbian and queer conversations, how we can kind of bring our communities together. Um, And I was interested because the the average Olivia traveler is older, 50s, 60s, (laughs) and I don't spend a lot of time with women that age, lesbian women that age. And... We uh, millennials tend to have a stereotype about a lot of a lot of older lesbians being trans exclusionary, being more kind of binary thinking. And I was curious to see if there are ways that you know we can keep these lesbian spaces alive, even as their general clientele ages up. You know, how what would 
a lesbian space look like for our generation? Hmm. Um, now, of course, you may have set out to write a story yes. that is just about <laughs> intergenerational differences and yeah. uh, break some ground there. Um, it ended up turning into this completely yes. different story. So how did it end up impacting your life? Yeah, I mean, so almost immediately I realized that this cruise was going to be um, personally meaningful for me in a yeah. way I didn't expect. I mean, I had never been around 2,000 other lesbians before. Even, you know, even we live in New York and it's very queer yeah. friendly, but even still nothing really compares to just being entirely in a world of your own community. At sea, no less. At yeah. sea, uh, yeah, with, it was, um, so even just like the women that I started meeting, the friends that I made just immediately, it was, it was, that was immediately meaningful. Um, but then I also happened to meet a woman who I immediately had a connection with. And even though she's twice my age and lives in the UK, we, uh, just kind of hit it off. So, yes. yeah. So here we are. Well, here we are. Yeah. And I highly recommend folks <laughs> read the actual story if you want uh, more information about that. And maybe we'll get, I hope we get a part two. Uh, I'm at the some part point. two will come eventually. The story is, it's, Still developing. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that uh, we've touched on now is that you know you did set out to explore this intergenerational question um, about if the uh, if lesbian spaces can survive in an increasingly gender fluid mm -hmm. world. So I, I do want to know: Did you find an answer to that question? You know, I don't think I found an, any kind of easy answer <laughs> to that question. But I did find that both that women of all generations, everyone that I met on this cruise, including you know other women in their in their twenties and thirties that we care. We want these places to last. We want them to be trans-inclusive, mm -hmm. but we also want to be able to, you know, honor our lesbian identities and our lesbian foremothers. And I think there will always be inter-community politics. Always. Yeah. But I think we care, if we care enough to make it happen, then we will. Well, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. Thanks, Alex. And if you haven't yet read Shannon's piece, do yourself a favor and read it now. Up next, I'm sitting down with Broadway star Laura Benanti. There are only a few people who can boast that they've starred in 11 Broadway shows, earned five Tony nominations, and took one home. As if that's not enough, she's currently on Broadway and on one of our favorite TV shows at the same time. I'm excited to welcome a true drama queen, Ms. Laura Benanti. <laughs> nice to meet you. Thank you for joining Thanks me. Thanks for having me. You are very busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time for us. My pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, you were just on stage at the Tonys, and you actually told a story about how your daughter shattered your Those were war. lies and jokes. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was just like award show banter. They had sent something similar, and then I modified it, and that's what it became. But she she did not break my Tony so Award. So it's still intact. Don't worry, Mom. It's fine. <laughs> also, I really appreciate that I'm matching this couch. Yeah. I like to just blend wherever I go. Yeah. I could also hide in your hair. So you that's the good news. You could do that. A little, a whole yeah. little matching look situation yeah. we have going on here. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of the Tonys, I want to show this picture from Instagram <clears throat> where okay. you're hanging out backstage with a bunch of your <laughs> amazing, famous yes. theater buddies. Can you talk me through, like, what is going on So here I had this incredible Mark Ingram custom gown made that's a gown, but it's also pants because I always want to be wearing pants and dresses simultaneously. <laughs> so in the bumper... Kristen Chenoweth was going to like jump out of my gown, <laughs> but unfortunately they cut to commercial too fast. So it just looks like God knows what jumped out of my gown. Yeah. So that's what it was meant to be. Yeah, well, I'm sensing yeah. a, a color theme here going on. I really like, like this color, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk about uh, the show that you're doing now. You're uh -huh. back on Broadway as Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady, yes. um, a role made famous by icons like Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn. We have some uh, tape there. Um, so folks can see what it looks like. Um, what does it feel like to step out on stage every night in these amazing costumes? Well, the costumes are incredible, of course, but this has been my dream role since I was literally four years old, before kindergarten, because I distinctly remember I was not going to kindergarten yet. So to be able to, um, you know, embody this character that my idol Julie Andrews embodied is really, really remarkable. And to do so with this incredible cast and Harry Haddon Payton, who plays opposite me, is um, 
it's really like a dream come true, you mm -hmm. know, and not a lot of people get to say that their dreams have come true. So, mm -hmm. so I guess it's all done and I'm just gonna. All right, that's it, you're finished. Yeah. Well, I'm back. Yeah, speaking of your co-star, I saw in an interview that you didn't get to rehearse with him. At all. Like the, so what? Not even one single day. Uh, that is so wild yes, to me. Yes, it is wild. Um, what is the first <laughs> night like when you don't get to rehearse with someone? You know, I, I guess I've been doing this for so long and so has he that we just were, tr were like, okay, well, in, uh, you know, in film and TV, you don't really get to rehearse that much. And it certainly was organic in that these were two people who were meeting each other for the first time. But um, it, it's preferable in the theater to have rehearsal time, but that's unfortunately yeah. not the way it worked out because Harry was filming um, the Downton Abbey movie in, in England, so he couldn't be there. Mm. So it was just me and our amazing um, stage manager, Jen Ray Moore. Mm. Well, uh, you mentioned your career longevity, and it's been 20 years since you made your Broadway debut. Um, which I was 18. <laughs> I was. But for real. For real, for real. Yeah. Um, and I don't seem genuine, but I am. Well, it, it's true. But one of the things that we talk a lot about with our guests here in film and TV are the changes for women, both in front of the camera and also behind the scenes. Um, how do you think that Broadway is faring when it comes to uh, equality? I think it's actually always been a little bit better. You know, because I don't think anybody is like, I want to be rich and famous. I'm going to be on Broadway. Like, you don't get paid a ton of money. You know, fame is certainly not part of the equation usually. It can lead to other things. But, you know, usually it's just a group of people who are incredibly talented, because you have to be to perform live eight shows a week, and who were like the nerds growing mm. up. They were like, the, we, were, we are <laughs> the theater nerds. And so I find that those people tend to be kinder and, and ahead of the curve, certainly in terms of like LGBTQ plus yeah. rights. We've always been at the forefront. You know, when, when literally, when the president of the United States wouldn't say the word AIDS, we had Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. Mm -hmm. You know, it gives me chills to think how many millions of dollars they have donated over the course of their you know, their time. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always actually been ahead of the curve. I, when I started doing TV was when I was like, oh, I'm sorry, this is how we just get to talk to ladies? Cool. Because there was a, a real contrast yes, there. Yes, because it's just a bunch saw. of straight dudes. It was just like a bunch of straight white dudes all of a sudden where I was used to being around people of color a lot more, you know, just diverse. There was, there's more diversity, I think. In Can the you theater. remember any moments where you were on set on a TV set, and you were like, "Did that? Did yes. somebody just say that to I'm, me?" Uh, yes, I yes, Ugh. many times. A lot of it was like regarding my weight, or you know, a, the gentle suggestion from a DP that I get a nose job because I'm so beautiful in real life, but what? not on camera. Yeah, where I was like, my nose may be big, but my ears work, wow. and that hurt my feelings. Wow. Um, so yeah, just stuff like that, where it's it's just constantly talking about the way a woman looks or how they should behave, or in a way that's really infantilizing. And yeah. I think that women, this new generation of women yeah. is like, no, thank no, you. No, we're not going to take yeah, that. Yeah, and Thanks. so we're just yeah. like, okay, cool, us too. Thank you. Us yeah. too, we also don't want it anymore. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, well, I want to talk about some of your other work as well. Um, you have an album called Singing You Home, Children's Songs for Family Reunification. Yes. Um, all the proceeds go to help reunite families who are separated at the border. Yes. Um, you got some, like, incredible stars on this album. Lin-Manuel Miranda, Audra McDonald, Cynthia Erivo, Josh Groban, Adina Menzel, Kristen Chenoweth. Um, Ingrid Michelson, Anna yeah. Viafanye, a, a little girl named Isabella Preston who sings the duet um, Aurora Mi Nino with me. Yes, mm -hmm. and my friend Mary Mitchell Campbell, who has an organization called Artists Striving to End Poverty. She was the music director. She got all of the musicians to donate their time. That is unheard of. All of these artists donated their time and talents, as well as the mu musicians. And then Warner Music and Ghostlight, which is the label, they gave us the recording studio. That is what the theater community is. When we see an injustice happening and certainly children being separated from their families is a horrendous injustice that should not be happening anywhere, but certainly on our soil as a, as a free country. I'm, I'm just really proud that we did it and please go buy it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we hope the right people uh, get the message of this project and that's yeah, well. kind of a perfect segue into my next question, which is what was it like to get the call from Stephen Colbert asking <laughs> you to play the first lady, Melania Trump? Well, he came to my show last night. He came to see my oh, fair lady, incredible. which was so nice. Um, you know, it was certainly a surprise. I had been on his show just promoting um, She Loves Me, which is a Broadway show that I had done with Zachary Levi. And um, he noticed, he, he pointed out to me our sort of physical similarities and then I thought nothing of it. And then after her famously plagiarized, um, you know, Republican National Convention speech, I woke up to like a thousand voicemails being like, you need to come in immediately. And I really appreciate that they took that chance because they had never seen my impression and I didn't have one. I, it, I had five hours to pull together 
like an impression of her. And and it was going live. Five hours. It wasn't even like we could tape it and go like, that's garbage, and then no one would ever see it. It was live. Wow. Yeah. So, that was it. and it worked out. Yeah, the rest is history. And it worked out. Well, um, another show that is working out is Younger. Younger. We love Younger. And Me you play too. a strong woman on the mm-hmm. show. She knows what she wants. Yes. She's kind of relentless. How yeah. fun is it playing someone like Quinn? Awesome. I love playing Quinn Tyler. I mean, I basically just play her as like a privileged white guy. <laughs> I mean. And that's, that's what gets you in the zone. It, it really is what gets me in, in the zone, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, before we go, we are a Twitter show. And yesterday yes. you tweeted, can someone calmly explain to me the issues surrounding <laughs> Taylor Swift's new video, not looking for a fight, looking for an education. And there was actually a really thoughtful conversation was it incredible? about this. Yeah. I feel like t- the Twittersphere or whatever the young people call it can be such a toxic environment. I have had so many situations where I just feel like, why is everyone screaming at me? Yeah. So so to ask for a polite dialogue and then for it to happen. And then people actually listen. Listen. Yeah. And we're educated and I was educated and I, I see points on both sides. And I was left just feeling like we can do this, you guys. We can do this. We can have civilized conversation, especially as the election is coming up in 2020. You know, I I, I do feel like um, we, I'm just going to say for myself, you know, as a liberal person, I feel like we need to come together and figure out what our collective message is so that we don't spend so much time fighting with each other that we just crumble to dust and blow away. And then in 2020, we have the garbage fire that we're in right now. <laughs> so I, I'm really happy to see and be a part of a civilized dialogue in which we can all see each other's points of view mm-hmm. and then grow from that. Mm-hmm. The only way we're going to get better is if we ask questions and then are quiet and listen. <laughs> well, speaking <laughs> of listening, was there anything that you learned from asking that question? Yes. Okay, so what I learned ultimately, this was my takeaway from it. I think that when a cis white person of privilege centers themselves within an ongoing narrative that has been incredibly fraught and and for a very long time, that can be complicated, Mm, mm. you know? At the same time, I do think that someone of her fame and position, you know, being a leader in how we sort of all should be together is important. And the money that she's raised and the, and the, the... the sheer number of people who are signing this petition, I do think is a really positive thing. And we have to allow for growth. I understand that in 2016, she she was quiet, but she herself has said, I, I wish that I wasn't and I'm not now. So I do think that we have to, especially when we idolize people who are so young, we have to give them room to grow. But I also do see the point very clearly that likening like being bullied on Twitter as like a rich white famous girl and possibly being kicked out of your home and or murdered for your identity, that's not the same. Mm -hmm. And so I think the combination of those things, likening them to each other, that metaphor, that analogy was was maybe a little tone deaf. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, I love this nuance that we're having right now. I feel like I could keep on talking about this all Same. afternoon. So thank you so much. Thanks for, for having me. me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And you can see Laura on Younger Wednesday nights on TV Land and catch her on stage in My Fair Lady at Lincoln Center. More AMPM is up next. Welcome back. This is At Us. Mm, And before we go, we wanted to talk about another story that is all over our timeline. Michael Blackman, who we had on earlier, tweeted this snippet of Beyonce and Donald Glover singing Can You Feel the Love Tonight from the new Lion King movie. Ugh. It's so excited. Like, I just really, I saw this in the control room <laughs> while you were with Laura, and I was like, this isn't real. Because at first I was a little cautious about Beyonce being uh, the voice, because it's like, that's Beyonce speaking. That's not Nala. But this song is just stunning. Yeah. It's really, really beautiful. Oh, I can't wait to <laughs> walk off set and go listen for myself. Yes. Beyonce be so rules delightful. everything. Are you definitely going to see this movie? Like, are you going to go, like, Girl, opening I, night? I just found out they're selling week? tickets, and I need to go buy oh, them they now. are? Tickets are on sale now. Going to buy. Okay. Yes. I feel like this is one of those movies where, like, I'll go and I'll watch it maybe one time just to, like, enjoy it, appreciate mm-hmm. the whole thing. Then I'll go back to really notice, like, some of the yeah. nuances with the voices. and it's Adulthood you know. will give you some better perspective on what they're going through, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait for that. Mm. So It's going to be great. Yeah, well, what a show today. Um, thank you to our guests, Hayes Brown, Michael Blackman, Paul McLeod, Shannon Keating, Laura Benanti, and Nicholas Braun. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. 